Well, of course, it is what a Christian would say, hallelujah, that the Lord is uh, his. Uh, he's our everything. We do praise him. As you know, I've been preaching Jesus' message. Uh, I'm preaching a sermon again this morning, a part, part, portion of it, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you'll turn there, verse 3 is where we uh, verse 4 rather, is where we focus our attention uh, this Lord's Day morning. The Sermon on the Mount, as it is called, uh, probably the most famous sermon that our Lord ever delivered. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed mourners is the title I'm using for uh, this verse. Many people think this beatitude refers to the blessing of comfort that God gives to those who have lost a loved one to death. This idea, this interpretation of this text has been reinforced by cards of condolence, which include this verse. I've seen many of them. Indeed, it is certainly true that the Lord is the comforter of his people in time of bereavement. We don't contest that. He is, in fact, the comforter of his people in all their sufferings and sorrows, no matter what they are. No matter how they come to us and brings grief to our hearts, he is ultimately our hearts, our life's comforter. For 2 Corinthians 1, 3, says this about our Heavenly Father, quote, the God of all comfort. It's comprehensive comfort. Complete comfort for the child of God in whatever their situation is. But, in talking about this verse, is our Lord Jesus talking about bereavement or, and, or is he talking about suffering in general? I'll have to say no. He is not. There are at least four reasons that we can offer to buttress or prove that he is not doing so in this text let me give them to you the first is the context of the gospel of matthew jesus and john the baptist both preach quote repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand their call to repentance alludes to the core problem of humanity humanity's core problem is fundamental issue is sin and alienation from God that it produces. So when they came onto the scene and the words of their preaching included repentance from sin. And the second thing I can say about this to help us understand what Jesus is talking about here in verse 4 is the immediate context. The first beatitude, verse 3, that we saw last time, shows us that sin is the problem in the words poor in spirit. And poor in spirit, of course, describes all men as being spiritually destitute or bankrupt due to their sin. The fall has left us that way. We didn't have anything beforehand, and we don't have it now. Uh, spiritually destitute people have nothing to offer God in terms of spiritual resources. Therefore, they must seek the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Third, we need to now 
widen the scope of our understanding to the proper inter- interpretation of this text by looking at, this is the next thing, the biblical context. You see that Jesus' words are an echo of Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read these verses in your hearing, and you can listen to them, or you can turn there if you wish, you can catch up in time. But listen to the word of God here. Verse 1, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now get this, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. And giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness. Instead of mourning. Thrice mentioned is the word mourn. And it tells us that, that mourning was happening at that particular juncture in Israel's or Judah's history. Why were they mourning? Because of their sin. They were experiencing the consequence of their sin. And that consequence was they were being taken to exile in Babylon for the 70 years of captivity. That induced mourning, grief, lament. They have to leave their own country and go to a foreign land and be there. And so they mourn. It's what sin does. Sin causes mourning. And sin and its consequence is echoed by our Lord during, during this verse that we're looking at this morning. He he is not talking about funerals and the comfort. He's talking about the reason there are funerals. Sin. And our Lord has used this text in Isaiah 61 before, remember, in his hometown. Fourth. See why this text that we're looking at here is not talking about the bereavement of a loved one, but something else. The word mourn, used by Jesus in this second beatitude, means an intense remorse over one's sinfulness and alienation from God. It's a deep grief. Deep grief. That one has when one is sinful and one is alienated from God. Personal sin, then, is the reason that Jesus says what he does. Here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The believer's reaction of mourning is what he is talking about here. That's the first heading. To such people, Jesus calls them blessed. To call them blessed is another way of saying that they are the recipients of divine favor. They are the recipients of divine grace. Divine grace was operative in their hearts, enabling them to repent. People don't do that on their own. 
The call to repentance comes with it, the power, the grace of God to do it. And people repent when this happens, this operation of divine grace. They see themselves as bankrupt spiritually before God. Grace enabled them to grieve, to lament over their personal sin and evil against holy God. People realize that I've offended God. I've sinned against him. I've been an affront to him. With the gracious operation of God in the lives, their lives, they were under no illusions about their spiritual status. That happens when you really see your sin. You abandon any notions that you're okay. That, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I, I look at others and comparatively speaking, I'm, I'm pretty good. No, no, no. When you see yourself, when God operates in your heart, you, you don't look around. You see you for who you are. They saw that they had violated his law. They stood rightly condemned before his bar of justice. In a word, they owned their sin. They owned their sinfulness. They did not rationalize it. They did not excuse it. They did not offer this lame statement, I'm only human after all. What does that have to do with it? No alibis. No blame shifting. Jesus says about people like that, blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. The word mourn in our text is in the present tense. Mourning then is a continual action. It's something we will do as believers all of our life because all of our life we're sinning and we repent don't we we not only lamented of our sin at the commencement of our salvation but mourning is a regular feature of our spiritual life that was the case with the saints in the old testament they saw their sin psalm 40 verse 12 the penman of that psalm says this, my iniquities have overtaken me so that I cannot see. They are more numerous than the hairs on my head and my heart has failed me, end of quote. He saw himself, his, the sin that overwhelmed him, his personal sin. You know something that's, that's interesting about the Christian life? To grow in grace is also to grow in the awareness of personal sin, which we lament. Isn't that amazing? The closer you get to Christ, the more like Christ you become, the more you see how far away you are from him. The the more like Christ, the more holy you become, the more you see your sin. You say, where did you get that? I'm, I'm glad you asked. The Apostle Paul was without question a spiritually mature man. Wouldn't you agree? Paul knew a thing about righteousness. He knew a thing about holiness. He's a godly man. But Paul, uh, in Romans chapter 7, he comes to the conclusion of that passage 
after he detailed um, his uh, inner struggles with indwelling sin, he says here in verse 24 of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, he exclaims, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin, that internal battle that he struggled with. Paul, he wanted, as you read through Romans 7, beginning at verse 14, you see what he wanted to do. He wanted to keep the law perfectly. But he saw clearly his sin. He also recognized the holiness of God and his perfect law, which he, Paul, couldn't keep perfectly. That's us. We see it when you love God, you love his law, you love his word, you want to keep his word, but you find yourself, even as you're progressing in holiness, you still come up short. You exclaim like Paul, wretched man that I am. You want deliverance. Who will set me free from the body of this death? As I repeat, verse 24, the bottom part, body of this death. The phrase refers to the place of operation of sin. We have to deal with it. So no one could accuse Paul of being immature. No one can accuse Paul of being anything other than a, a godly man. But he struggled to fight sin as we all do as Christians. We want to honor God in our life. Like Paul, the maturing Christian increasingly perceives his or her own sinfulness, and we mourn over it. But our personal sin is not all that we mourn over. (laughs) Keep that in mind. We, uh, like the Apostle Paul, we have to use him again. He uh, mourned over the sins of the saints. In fact, he rebuked the Corinthian assembly for not mourning over sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, you recall there was a man in their assembly, a so-called brother, who um, was engaged in sexual immorality, we believe, with his stepmother. And instead of the church at Corinth mourning over this egregious violation of God's law, this egregious sin, which even the Gentiles, pagans, wouldn't engage in. Paul says, you're proud. You're proud you should be mourning. Rather than walking around proud, they should have mourned and done something about that man in his sin. The Corinthians... Also, it sinned against Paul. A later occasion, it caused him pain and anguish with respect to false teachers who had infiltrated that uh, local assembly. And those false teachers, they promulgated false teaching and they sought to undermine the apostle's authority as an apostle. And those Corinthians turned on him.
Paul writes them a non-canonical letter. That is a, a letter that's not in the Bible. It was inspired as First and Second Corinthians are. He wrote them this this letter, and they repented. Titus reported to Paul that they, here's our word, mourned over their sin and disloyalty to Paul. 2 Corinthians 7, 7. When they saw their sin and they recognized what we had done, what they had done, then that moved them to zeal to clear their name, that moved them longing for Paul, the text says in 2 Corinthians 7, and they mourned, they grieved over what they had done. Certainly, we should mourn when we sin against a fellow believer, right? Should never be taken lightly. And they did that. Now, sadly, yeah, the Church of Corinth was problematic, wasn't it? It was a pastoral challenge, <laughs> shall we say. In Second Corinthians 12, verse 21, Paul lets them know he planned to visit them. He wanted to come, naturally. He loved those people, despite all the problems and the troubles that assembly posed to him. But he says to him, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, these words, And I may mourn over many who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity and immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. Hmm. There's that word again. It's going to mourn. Grief. Mourning over sin is a mark of a mature and healthy spiritual life now let me let me just interject something here because i wouldn't want people to think you walk around all day with your uh, looking like you got you sucked on lemons and you're overcome with grief all the time contemplating sins your own and others no there's joy in the christian life right the fruit of the spirit you'll have that but there is an appropriateness to mourning over that which is wicked that which offends god And interestingly, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. (laughs) Who connects those two things? Who connects blessedness with mourning? Blessedness with um, grief. And if we would, you want to say the word blessed and imply happy, and though we understand not happy in the sense of circumstantial, but happy in the sense that there's deep-seated commitment, we could say happy are the sad Really? Yes. Because of the issue that's addressed. The issue of sin. Which is right. You really want to be blessed? You really want to be happy from a biblical point of view? You really want to have bliss? You really want to be fortunate? Deal with sin. But that's what the people who are in the kingdom do. You see, in verse 3, you recall, uh, we saw last week, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are in the kingdom. They're in that sphere of salvation. And what do they do? They deal with sin. They mourn over it. Repent. It's a believer's reaction. 
The divine response we find in the clause, verse 4. For they shall be comforted. The morning believer will be comforted. We know who the comforter is, God. That is his response to those who acknowledge their sin. Now get this point. The blessedness which Jesus pronounces upon them is not the morning itself. But the divine response to the morning person. He responds to the morning person with comfort. The one who is contrite, that is brokenhearted, who is penitent, who is repentant. Isaiah 66 verse 2 puts it like this, but to this one I will look to him spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one to whom God looks. God sees you when you're humble and contrite. He sees you're broken hearted. You're trembling at his word. He sees. Tracks his eyes. God forgives the humble and contrite person in their sin. David. David understood this. We know quite well that he did. David uh, was contrite. He had uh, failed to confess for a while. But eventually he did. In Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, it says this, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David understood the blessedness of forgiveness. When he acknowledged his sin, he had done that. Verse 5 of Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you and, and my iniquity. I did not hide. That's one thing you want to do. You want to experience the comfort of God. Don't hide your sin. You want his forgiveness? Don't pretend it didn't happen. Confess it. This is what David did in verse 5. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then he says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's how you deal with it. You don't, don't, don't go around acting like, uh, what, 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 what did I do? You know what you did. Acknowledge it to him. By the way, You need to understand, help you to think about this more deeply. Uh, you need to understand just who you are sinning against. I already alluded to it. You want the comfort of God? Keep this in mind. David says this in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and not done what is evil in your sight. You say, well, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? Did he not sin against him? Yes. But you see, ultimately it's against God because it's God's law that's broken. There's a nexus, God, his law, and sin. Those three go together. It's God, he gives his law, and when we break it, we sin against him. Ultimately, all sin is against God. David recognized it. That's why he said what he said. 
in that text. So the comfort of God is to those who are repentant. I need for a moment to just address the reality. There are people who, uh, who are not in the kingdom, who are not saved, and there is no comfort from God to them. Those who love their sin in the perverse and evil way, who spurn God's path, spurn God's grace, spurn God's righteousness, there is no comfort from him for them. Jesus tells us what the deal is for them. In Luke chapter 6, Beatitudes are recorded there by Luke from Jesus. And there are antitheses there that are not given in Matthew's gospel. These antitheses show the opposite of the blessedness are being blessed. We're not going to go through all of them, obviously. But verse 24 of Luke 6. Listen to what Jesus says. But woe. Woe. That's a word of warning and of judgment. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort, get that word, in full. Now, let me, uh, let me qualify all this. Jesus is not pronouncing judgment on those who are materially rich because they're materially rich. God doesn't condemn people for being wealthy. First Timothy 6, I believe, is the rich don't trust in uncertain riches. Abraham and others. No, um, they think that their wealth is all they need. The ones who are hearing the woe. They think their wealth means that they're all right. In every way, they're not. And Jesus says, you receive your comfort in full. As I was growing up, I had a relative who used to say about wealthy people who are not Christians that they're having their heaven now. And that's not far off the mark, because they are. Verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. There's another pronouncement of woe and judgment, hungry. Um, what does he mean, hungry here? He is not talking about physical hunger later. He is talking about not being satisfied. You know when you, you eat, you're satisfied, aren't you? And we eat even when we are satisfied. We keep on with anyway, That's another story. <laughs> But here what Jesus is teaching, there are people who are well fed in this life who have no interest whatsoever in spiritual realities. They poo-poo that, re re refuse that. They say no to what God has to say, what Christ has to say. They have all they need now. They're well fed now. But Jesus pronounces a woe on those people. He says, for you shall be hungry. That is, for all eternity, the next life, they will never be satisfied. Think about that. Hungry for eternity, not for food, but inwardly the soul, a lost soul, never experiencing satisfaction in eternity because they refuse the grace of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Best life now? That's all you got. That's all you get. 
Then Jesus goes on, whoa, there is another pronouncement. To you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. These are the curses. Laugh, uh, the irreverent laughter, the flippant laughter, the laughing about everything, just no seriousness about God, about life, about death, about hell, none of that. Well, you can laugh now. Well, you shall mourn and weep. They will experience the ceaseless, comfortless torments of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have to tell people the truth about what's coming. Jesus said it. Um, those are the kind of words that men without Christ has. Now I'm going to tell you though, the Lord uh, summons people to come to him. James writes in James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, check this out. Be miserable and mourn and weep. <laughs> what do you think he wants them to be miserable and mourn and weep over? Uh, their sin. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's what sinner needs to do. More, even a believer who has been trifling with God and not dealing with sin, you need to do that. Now, in our text, in verse 4, again, that word, um, comfort uh, for they shall be comforted you obviously is in the future but do understand this does not mean that there is no present comfort for God's people but rather the fullness of comfort waits the eternal state of the future life we have comfort now, yes. We have the comfort of God's forgiveness now, yes. But the full experience of that comfort waits our future. And the scripture is uh, clear on that. Revelation chapter 21. This is a passage that speaks about the eternal state. Eternal state. And one of the things that we find here is revealed about the eternal state. There are things that are going to be missing, things that will be absent. You won't be able to find them. Revelation 21 4. It says. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any. Here's our word. Mourning. Let me just stop there and camp on that for a moment. Uh, we will have a mourning free existence. 
Imagine all of eternity. You'll never mourn. You won't know what grief is. You'll never lament. There'll be no sorrow. For all eternity, every day of our existence in heaven, the new earth, the new heaven, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Why? Look what it says. The first things have passed away. We said in verse 1, gone. This order that we're experiencing now where we experience the curse because of sin that produces the pain, the negative things that this verse talks about, that'll all be gone. Since the curse is gone, there'll be no mourning. That's where we're headed. All those who are in the kingdom, God's sphere of salvation the kingdom, his rule. We Christians are in it and this is our destiny. So we'll never ever. Now you know why Jesus said blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We'll be uh, forgiven people. Permanently forgiven. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. He did that so we could have that forgiveness and be in a place where there is no more mourning. I'm going to close with this. Bernard of Clairvaux. In Jesus, the very thought of thee. captures the spirit of forgiveness as given to us by him. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall, how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. That's our Lord Jesus in the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for him. The comfort that comes to the mourners, those of us who truly know Jesus, you, our Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us in time and eternity. May these truths continue to resonate in our heart. Encourage us to give you greater praise and thanksgiving for your gracious, merciful actions toward us. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.